Today is from Matthew 5, verses 17, right through to the end of 48. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Anger. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put, you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Lust. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful, lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that your whole body go into hell. Divorce. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman, woman commits adultery. Oaths. Again, you have said that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Retaliation. If you have heard, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, 
go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Love your enemies. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Giving to the needy. No, hang on, that's the end. Sorry, there ends the reading. <laughs> Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks very much to Lenore for the reading this morning. And yes, we're in that part of Matthew 5. It'd be great if you can have a Bible open with you, then you can follow along with us. We're going to be jumping around there this morning, so it would be helpful. And also, a huge welcome to you if you're visiting. I see we've got a bunch of new faces this morning. It's really encouraging. We're working our way through these chapters in Matthew's Gospel at the moment called the Sermon on the Mount. And today's our fourth uh, week working through that. So I'm going to pray, then we'll look at this passage together. Well, teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes, so that we can keep them to the end. Please give us understanding that we can keep your law and observe it with our whole hearts. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, I'd like to introduce you to Murray. Murray's been a Christian for a while. He goes to church every Sunday with his family. He goes to a small group Bible study on Tuesday nights. Uh, He's pretty regular. Some mornings he gets up early to read his Bible and pray. In fact, he does that most mornings. Sometimes younger Christians ask him for advice. If you had to ask Murray what he believes, he wouldn't have any trouble in explaining that, well, he used to be under God's judgment because of his sin. But then he put his trust in Jesus, and Jesus, because of what he'd done on the cross, has paid for his sin and secured his place in heaven forever. However, Murray has a short temper, and he doesn't have patience for people who don't meet his expectations. In fact, just the other day, there was a guy on his team at work who made a suggestion that he thought was stupid, and he told him so in no uncertain terms. In fact, people at church have even noticed how Murray often talks down to people. Sometimes when Murray's at the beach with his family, uh, from behind his sunnies, he lets his eyes linger on the the other woman in their negligible swimwear. Once or twice in the last month, he's looked at porn on the internet. But it's not like he would actually go further than that and sleep with someone else. He's not that kind of guy. Sometimes, though, he does wonder whether he and his wife got married too young, that perhaps they uh, missed out on other opportunities. Sometimes he feels like his wife doesn't really understand him. Sandra at work seems to understand him, though. She always seems to be interested in him. Murray often volunteers to do things at church. He likes to be seen doing things. He doesn't always deliver on his promises, though. 
Sometimes he's just too busy or other things come up or sometimes he just forgets. So he lets things slide, but he would get very upset if people said he couldn't be trusted or couldn't be relied on. Last week when Murray was driving to the gym, a pea placer pulled out in front of an intersection in front of him. So at the lights, he overtook the pea placer and pulled in front of them to teach them a lesson. Of course, Murray's a nice guy. He does often help at church and help people at church when he can. But he's got a neighbor who's clearly not a Christian. Sometimes he has loud parties and keeps Murray up at night. And sometimes he parks his car across Murray's driveway and he can't get out in the morning. The guy really rubs Murray up the wrong way. He even came to knock on Murray's door the other day, but Murray pretended not to be at home, even though his car was in the driveway. Sometimes he vents to his wife about how much he just can't stand the guys next door. Now, of course, a lot of this is going on in Murray's heart, unseen by those around him. But if you, if you knew about all this and you believed Murray was probably a Christian, what conclusions might you draw about his relationship with God? Now, of course, I've just made Murray up. I try to pick a name that doesn't belong to anyone here to the best of my knowledge. And uh, <laughs> if your name's Murray and you're watching online or whatever, my apologies. This is not meant to be a reflection on you or on anyone else called Murray. But I'm sure you realize that Murray could easily be a real person. And I hope it's obvious we're also not just talking about guys. Perhaps we've met Murrays. Perhaps we are Murray. The point is, though, we might be saved by Christ, but our attitude towards God's law always says something about our relationship with the God whose law it is. And that's what Jesus is really driving at here in this section, the second half of chapter 5. This is on to our second point. If you've got an outline in front of you this morning, you're taking notes. And just to say, we covered the first part of this section last week, verse 17 to 20. And that's where Jesus said that he didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament law. No, he actually came to fulfill it, to complete it. And therefore, to offer in himself a better or greater righteousness than the most religious people of the day. Righteousness is still and has always been the entry requirement for God's kingdom. But only righteousness through Jesus is enough. And Jesus said that though he has fulfilled the law, its work is not yet done. God's law will stand until the end of the world, and his disciples should live by it, and they should teach others to do the same. And so what follows in verse 21 to 48 of the chapter is Jesus teaching his disciples about the attitude they should have towards the law that he has fulfilled. And to do that, he uses six examples, which we'll look at uh, going through in a moment. Good to notice, though, verse 20 provides the, the kind of transitional link between the two sections, between verse 17 to 20 and uh, 20 to 48. Remember, look at verse, uh, verse, verse 20 of chapter 5. It's very important. Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this helps us know how to read verse 21 to 48. We can expect it to be a contrast between a righteousness 
that is an approach that the scribes and the Pharisees used to approach God's law, contrasted with a righteousness of Jesus' approach to God's law, the better righteousness or the righteousness which exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So I want to spend some time looking at this section more generally before we dive into the examples themselves. So we can see the difference between these two approaches, the approaches of Jesus and the approach of the religious leaders. And this will help us then to read the examples properly. Now, the first thing to notice, and I hope you notice this as as Lenore was reading it, is that Jesus always starts each example with the same words. He says, you have heard it said, or, or some variation of that. You have heard that it was said to those of old. Now, if you start looking up these rules in the Old Testament, you'll be able to find the first two in the Ten Commandments. They're the Sixth and Seventh Commandments. Uh, Verse 22, you shall not murder. And verse 27, you shall not commit adultery. Those words are in black and white in Exodus chapter 20. But as you move on, the next few commandments are, are sort of there in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy and Leviticus especially... But it starts becoming hard to pinpoint exactly where a lot of these commands come from. Often we can find parts of the command, like, you shall not murder, but it's hard to find the words, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. It's hard to kind of find exactly where in the Old Testament that second part comes from. And actually what Jesus is referring to here becomes very clear in the last example he uses in verse 43. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, you shall love your neighbor is in the Bible. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Jesus quotes it when he's asked what the most important law is. But you shall hate your enemy is not in the Bible anywhere. So where does it come from? Well, it comes from the teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the ones who've been saying the things the disciples have heard. They're the ones who've been interpreting God's law for the people and saying, this is how you need to understand it. The problem was, these guys were legalists. And though they put God's law up on a pedestal, they interpreted it by narrowing its scope to make it easier to keep. It's very easy to say, yes, I'm a, I'm a law-keeping Jew when you've made the law so narrow that really it's about checking boxes. You see, they relaxed the laws and taught others to do the same. And in doing so, they accommodated sin and they destroyed the law's spirit while keeping its letter. So, yes, you could harbor murderous thoughts about someone in your heart, but as long as you didn't actually stick a knife in them, you were, you were in the clear. And, yes, you could entertain sexual desires towards someone uh, other than your husband or your wife, but unless you actually had sex with someone you actually weren't married to, you were in the clear. It's fine. You could say, yes, I've kept the law. And remember the scribe in Luke chapter 10 who asked Jesus what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus told him, love God and love your neighbor. And Luke tells us what happened next. Luke 10, 29, the scribe, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Do you see the problem? 
See, it's easy to keep a law and be very righteous according to that law when it only deals with externals and leaves sin in the heart untouched. Jesus said God's law doesn't work like that. That's the first thing to notice, the the you have heard it said, that formula. The second thing to notice is that God's law is about what's happening in the heart. I think this comes out most clearly in verse 28. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's what the law is driving at here. It's not externals, it's internals. It's a bit like if I needed to get to Brisbane, but I start driving on the road to Gympie, and even if I turn back before I get to Gympie, I would still have been on the wrong road facing the wrong direction the whole time. So anger, long before killing, has already broken God's law not to murder. It's still heading the same way. Lust, long before cheating, has already broken God's law not to commit adultery. It's it's heading the same way. These are heart issues. They're not legal issues. Well, there's a third thing to notice here as well. Excuse me. And you see, the way Jesus teaches these laws isn't just aimed at a kind of stricter legalism. He's not just expanding the laws where the the, the Pharisees and religious leaders have narrowed them. He also speaks about keeping God's law by promoting the opposite of what the law forbids. I'm trying to explain what I mean there. Do you notice in that first example where instead of murdering or just being angry with someone, Jesus teaches his disciples that they should be proactive in mending relationships. You see that? Or in in, in the next example, or the example in verse 33 about oaths and promises. Instead of making grand promises, Jesus teaches his disciples should be trusted with their yes or their no. That's because God's laws are not just about the things that offend God or make... They're actually about promoting and preserving the things that God loves and values. Human life made in his image, marriage and sex, personal integrity, love for neighbor. It's not just a bunch of don'ts. It's also a bunch of do's. So we can already start to see that the the righteousness of the Pharisees and the righteousness Jesus describes are, are worlds apart. And the quibble is not about what God's word actually says. It's about how it's read and how it's lived out. I'll get to our third point. And this is where I want to go through each of these commands and make some comments about how Jesus interprets each one. Of course, the first one he tackles is in verse 21. It's the sixth commandment, do not murder. And here, instead of just limiting the command to forbidding unlawful killing, Jesus deepens the spirit of the commandment to include anger, insult, and even character assassination. That's because the law isn't just meant to keep dead bodies off the street. It's meant to protect human life, which is made in the image of God himself. Keeping this commandment is less about guns and knives and more about respecting and valuing the image of God in another person, whoever they are. And you know, Jesus deepens the idea still further too in verse 23 and 24. Here we're called to help others keep this commandment as well. 
If you know someone who has something against you, don't leave them to be angry about it or leave them to deal with it. Jesus says, go and make it right as a matter of urgency. Your brother or sister's relationship with God is as important as yours. Sin just leads to more sin, so break the cycle and be a peacemaker, says Jesus. Be the first to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. In fact, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. That's back in verse 9. Well, secondly, Jesus deals with the seventh of the Ten Commandments, verse 27, do not commit adultery. Now, just to be clear what the Bible actually means by adultery, it means having the kind of intimate relationship that is reserved for and exclusive to marriage with someone who is not actually your husband or your wife. And let me say, this is as much an issue for single people as it is for married people. In other words, adultery is unfaithfulness to your husband or your wife, even if you haven't met them yet. The Bible teaches that lifelong commitment under God to one other person of the opposite gender comes before any of the benefits of marriage. There is no try before you buy. Again, Jesus deepens the definition here, not just to include the act, but the desire for the act, playing it out in your mind the fantasizing, the lingering look. And the solution, says Jesus, is being willing to undergo radical surgery. Be ruthless with your sin, even if it is painful or uncomfortable or awkward. Sin, and especially sexual sin, is the road to hell, whether it's with a person, on a screen, or on a printed page. Think of Aaron Ralston. The canyoneer who in 2003, when he was climbing alone, he dislodged a boulder. He crushed his left hand and pinned his right hand against a rock face. He was alone, stuck, and no one knew where he was. And after five days, he made the agonizing decision to break his right forearm and cut it off with a pair, with a, a pair of pliers and a blunt penknife. It was a choice between losing an arm or losing his life. Of course, it's been made into a movie called 127 Hours. You might have seen it. Jesus says this is the kind of choice we're facing when it comes to our sin, especially sexual sin. Gouge it out. Cut it off. Get rid of it. Don't go there. Get a dumb phone. Change gyms. Change jobs. Ask a Christian, trusted Christian friend to pray for you and hold you accountable. John Owen's famous statement still holds true today. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. So be ruthless with your sin. As Jesus has already said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Well, next Jesus turns to divorce as a kind of natural progression from sexual sin. Now, we need to be sensitive here. There are many people here today who know the pain and brokenness of divorce. Maybe you're a child who who experienced your parents being divorced, or maybe you've experienced divorce yourself, either as the, the, the wronged party or the one who wronged. So to understand Jesus correctly here, we need to remember the context into which he's speaking. Religious leaders who relaxed God's law to make it easier to keep by artificially narrowing its scope. In other words, divorce at a whim 
divorce for trivial issues. There's historical evidence to say that some of these religious leaders were teaching that you could divorce your wife if, you, if she burnt your food or if uh, you just didn't find her attractive anymore. Now, Jesus actually has a discussion with some Pharisees in chapter 19 about this same issue, and they want to know what his take is on what God said through Moses, that a man could give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Matthew 19, verse 7, uh, comes from Deuteronomy 21, verse 1 to 4. And Jesus responds quite clearly, it's not to be understood as a a blanket endorsement of no-fault divorce or, or divorce for trivial reasons. But Jesus says, Matthew 19, verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. You see, where the Pharisees were preoccupied with the grounds for divorce, Jesus is absorbed with the holiness of marriage. The way then to live out God's law rightly is to be faithful. Not to your feelings and not to yourself, but to your spouse and the promises you made before God to them. So work through issues. Get help if you need it. Be faithful. Let me say that if you're contemplating divorce today, or you feel like your marriage is on the rocks, please talk to someone. Talk to a trusted Christian friend. Talk to me or one of the other elders. We'd only be too happy to point you in the right direction and help you get the help you need. And if you are divorced, know there is still hope. Because Jesus' approach to law here doesn't mean that because of what you did, you're outside of God's love. God's love for you is ultimately based on where you stand with Jesus and not on anything you've done. So be faithful. Fourthly, be trustworthy. Verse 33. This is the issue of oaths, vows, promises. Now, some background information might be useful here. Because of a legalistic and ultimately heartless attitude towards God's laws, It was taught that oaths or vows could be made and broken with no problem as long as certain formulas were used in their making. So people could swear by heaven or by earth, verse 34 and 35, but so long as they didn't swear by God's own name, the promise wasn't strictly binding. I think this is very clear from a plain reading of Leviticus 19, verse 12, before it was obscured by this religious legalism. Leviticus 19, verse 12 says clearly, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord. I am your God. You see, the heart of the issue here is making elaborate promises, but not actually following through, or even intending to. We might say over-promising and under-delivering. By contrast, Jesus says, you can't change what's true, even the color of your hair. Well, and so he says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. People who belong to God's kingdom should be people of their word. Even in the smallest matters, if you say you're going to do something, do it. But now the obvious question, does that mean you can't take an oath if you're required to do so? 
like in a law court, for example? Well, not at all. But what it does mean is that oaths or not, there should be absolutely no doubt that those who belong to God's kingdom will always speak the truth. Always. Be trustworthy. Well, the fifth example Jesus uses is the issue of revenge and recompense. This is in verse 38. Now, just redress or punishment that fits the crime was part of God's law for his covenant people way back in the Old Testament. It's still fundamental to a lawful society today. And Jesus' words here don't change that. The problem is when we become judge and jury as individuals... And we start demanding an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth for any time someone has personally wronged or slighted me. When someone wrongs us, Jesus says, by contrast, there's an opportunity to live as those who belong to another kingdom, as those who actually have nothing to lose. Remember what Jesus said back in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If I'm going to inherit the earth along with all the other blessings that Jesus promises. How could you possibly give me anything that's going to make me better off? Am I somehow going to find more blessing in taking revenge on you? I don't think so. My contrast says, Jesus, those who shall inherit the earth, to those to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs, they ought to be very generous with those who wrong them. So rather than seeing personal injuries as an opportunity for personal gain, we must see them as opportunities for personal love and generosity. Well, number six, lastly and fittingly, verse 43, Jesus deals with the question of who to love. And as we've said, God's law does say that we are to love our neighbor, but it never says we're to hate our enemies. Why? Because that's not what God is like. He is compassionate towards the good and the evil, giving them both life each day. So, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So loving our neighbor is not about asking, who is my neighbor? It's about asking, who can I love? And you know, Jesus is very perceptive here because he knows that if we had to pray for the people that we don't like, people we might consider as our enemies, our attitudes towards them have to change. Perhaps think of someone you don't like here this morning. How would you pray for them? And how would that change your attitude towards them? And friends, this is because our obedience to God's law is not about legalism, and it never was. It's not about keeping rules to be righteous. It never was. It's ultimately about reflecting God's character to the world around us as we live out the righteousness that we've received in Christ. And this brings us neatly to the final word on the matter. Verse 48, Jesus says, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus says the bottom line about this whole law thing is be perfect. Now, he certainly raised the bar here. Is this even reasonable or achievable, though? Well, remember what Jesus said about his own relationship to God's law. He's come to fulfill it. 
In other words, he's come to make available a real righteousness, one that exceeds the fake self-serving righteousness of the religious leaders who pay lip service to God's law but ignore the heart behind it. And it's his righteousness in place of our chronic unrighteousness which gives us access to his kingdom. So Jesus doesn't say, be perfect so that God will be impressed and have mercy on you and let you into his kingdom. No. He says, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Another way of saying that is reflect the family likeness of the one who is already your father. Now, some of you might be aware that I was adopted as a baby. I was welcomed into a new family. I was given a new name by the most amazing parents who I love very dearly. But I don't actually look like any of my parents. There's no genetic heritage there. Even so, I've come across people who know my mum and dad, and then they meet me, and they can somehow tell, you're Gary and Liz's son, aren't you? In fact, Melissa tells me I'm getting more and more like my dad as I get older. But even without the shared DNA, you know, I've, I've picked up values, picked up an accent, I've picked up mannerisms and quirks that unavoidably reflect who my parents are. In a similar way, this is what Christian obedience to God's law comes down to. Reflecting the likeness of the father who has adopted us into his family. That is the determining factor in how we live, friends. And it tells us what to do with God's law tells us how to answer those questions. How should I live in this situation? Well, I should live in the way that reflects God and what he says is right and what he says is good. Think back to Murray, who we met at the beginning. Murray didn't have a rule problem. Murray had a heart problem. He didn't seem to have a real heart to live out the righteousness that Jesus bought him at the cross. Now, we can't say he isn't saved, but can we say he truly is? See, believing we're saved by grace and therefore how we live doesn't matter is not a biblical idea. It's not a biblical idea any more than the idea of keeping God's laws by dotting legalistic I's and crossing moralistic T's is going to impress God. Both of those ends of the spectrum are not in God's word. Instead, Christians, those who've been brought into God's kingdom by Jesus' righteousness alone, are called to live righteously. That is, we're to take every opportunity to deliberately live out our righteousness, whatever it takes, with the strength supplied by God's Spirit, to show the world whose family and whose kingdom we really belong to. Amen? Well, how about we pray? And perhaps before we pray, it'd be right to take some time to reflect. A lot of issues have been raised here in these words. In silent reflection, maybe you'd like to take stock of your life and where you stand with God. Maybe you need to make some changes today and ask for his help. Maybe you need to ask God to forgive you. Maybe you need to ask someone else to forgive you. Take a few minutes now and then we'll pray together.
The Bible says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. Father God, we know that in and of ourselves we are unrighteous and there is no way we could ever please you. So we thank you for making us righteous in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that as you have brought us into your kingdom through the righteousness of Jesus, that his righteousness might be the way we live. Please strengthen us today, Father, to live out the righteousness we have received in Christ and to show the world whose kingdom we truly belong to. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as we move to the close of the service, we're going to stand together and sing. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you.